We're going to look at the second part of Ezekiel chapter 14 today. Verse 12 to 23. Hear God's holy word. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, if a country sins against me by committing unfaithfulness, and I stretch out my hand against it, destroy its supply of bread, send famine against it, cut off from it both man and beast, even though these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in its midst, by their own righteousness they could only deliver themselves, declared the Lord God. If I were to cause wild beasts to pass through the land, and they depopulated, and it became desolate so that no one would pass through it because of the beasts, Though these three men were in its midst, as I lived, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters. They alone would be delivered, but their country would be desolate. Or if I should bring a sword on the country and say, let the sword pass through the country and cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in its midst, as I lived, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their sons or their daughters, but they alone would be delivered. Or if I should send a plague among the country and pour out my wrath in blood or cut off from man and beast from it, <clears throat> Even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in its midst, as I lived, declares the Lord God, they could not deliver either their son or their daughter. They would only deliver themselves by their own righteousness. Thus says the Lord God, How much more when I send my four severe judgments against Jerusalem, sword, famine, wild beasts, and plague, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, the survivors will be left in it, who will be brought out, both sons and daughters, Behold, they are going to come forth to you, and you will see their conduct and actions. Then you will be comforted for the calamity which I have brought against Jerusalem, for everything which I have brought upon it. Then they will comfort you when you see their conduct and actions, for you will know that I have not done in vain whatever I do did to it, declares the Lord God. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we worship and adore you as you are God, um, uncreated, underived perfect, everlasting God. And we are your creatures, creatures of time and space that you have created to live with you forever, time without end. Pray, Lord, that you would speak to us through this word, that we would bend the knee to your righteous judgments, and we would, re- we, we would rejoice, Lord, at your righteous mercy on a holy remnant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. What I want to do tonight, again, the passages, I mean, clear up to chapter 24, chapter 25, we're talking about judgment in some way in connection with Jerusalem. And then when we hit chapter 24, 25 and and beyond, we're looking at judgment of God upon the nations, Gentiles. So the the themes are somewhat fairly similar. So, so what I want to do, though, is I want to look at a couple of things, maybe to clamp down on some more basic truths. If you look at verse 12 and then 21, very, very basic, very fundamental, but I think it's necessary to really grasp this once again. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, and then you have what God says through his man, um, Ezekiel, and then verse 21, for thus says the Lord God, 
This is the grand truth upon which every other truth in this chapter, in, in the book, in, in the entire Bible, is, is built. And I almost don't want to say it because it seems so simple. But what this is teaching us is that the Bible is the very Word of God. And I know that we are all professing Protestants, professing theists, Trinitarian professing theists, that we're not atheists. But this text, verse 12 and verse 21, thus saith the Lord, teaches us that God is, God exists. And when I say God, obviously I mean the God of the Bible, the triune, true and living God. And, and we, we believe what this teaches us, that God is revealing himself to man in the scripture. One of the reasons I think it bears maybe just a, just a, a bit of a pointed application to it is all of the people that God is speaking to here would have said, of course, we're, we're Judah, we're Israel. Uh, we're not Hittites, we're not Amorites. We're not professing atheists. They were professing theists. In fact, they're all over the place saying, we believe in the Lord, we believe in Jehovah. And the next thing you know, we see them bowing down to the sun as God. So it's one thing to say, I believe in God, I believe the God of the Bible is God, and I believe that the word of God, the Bible, is the word of God. I believe it. It's one thing to say that, it's another thing to mean it. And most of the people that God is speaking to said what we say. They say, yes, 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 thus saith the Lord, yes. But they didn't believe it. If the Bible will be of any salvific benefit to us, we actually have to really believe it. Not just say that we believe it, but we have to believe it. And we have to believe that the judgment passages are divine judgment. The mercy passages are divine mercy. They God has said this, and they're true, and they will come to pass. So us, for us to derive any benefit from the Bible, we have to really believe that it is the Word of God. And what we're being told is the bulk of the church, the bulk of the, bulk of the household of faith here clearly didn't have faith. This is the Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 18 when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith upon the earth? And it's not, will he find faith among the Hindus? No, he won't. Will he find faith in the churches? And the idea is not a lot of it. And that's what we're looking at actually um, here. I would say this, unless we believe, really believe in God, we cannot be saved from God. When you think of judgment, it's actually the judgment of God. God saves us from himself. The Lord Jesus Christ saves us from the offended wrath of God. So unless we believe in this God, we cannot be saved by this God. Now, for a time, these people, and for a time, many, many people in churches that don't believe the Bible really is the word of God, even if they say they do, God permits in his infinite wisdom human beings to be God deniers, though they say they're God believers, for a little bit of time. And we call that hypocrisy. And that, of course, is the charge that we're all open to as believers because we still stumble and bumble. But a real hypocrite is a play actor. They say, I believe the Bible is the word of God. I believe in Jehovah. And then they bow down to the sun. That's a hypocrite. These people are hypocrites. 
God in his providence allows people like that to exist in the household of faith only for a little bit of time. And I can't look at a person's heart. I don't know. So you admit them or you cast them out based on certain external things that you can observe. Beyond that, I, th there is no policing of Christ's church. But then there will come a time when all the people that really denied God, they will believe in God. But it will be too late because then they will receive not mercy from God, um, but justice. So when we come here, it's almost helpful for us to say regularly when we come to the Bible, this is the very word of God. This really is the word of God. And derive comfort from the comfort passages, to take warning in the warning passages. And I think it would be helpful for us to have our private worship, certainly our cor corporate worship. And then when we come to passages like we're looking at, we have both justice, and at the very end, you have the mercy. We've mentioned this before. Yes, that theme is so prominent. Judgment, 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 judgment. And then all through the book, I'll save, I'll save, I'll save. They're, they're, these tokens of mercy. We have the very same thing here. So when we are convinced that the Bible is the inspired word of God, it helps, it helps mitigate the pain of some of the harder passages. There are hard passages in them. They're, they're, he's going to send four plagues on the people to basically depopulate the place. And that's a fairly hard, hard truth. But when we believe it's the word of God, it helps at least our reception of that. And then we believe the um, mercy parts as well. And when we think of it, if you reject the mercy of God in Christ, the only thing that remains is is judgment so we come right away we acknowledge that the bible is the word of god thus saith the lord thus saith the lord thus saith the lord and now let's address he has in the passage god inspires three holy men and four painful plagues let's look at the the three holy men they're mentioned noah daniel and job is interesting interesting three men to to name both Noah, um, depending if you're young earth, uh, young earth or old earth, I suppose I'm young earth, so 10,000 years, something like that. I don't, I don't know. I used to remember what I believed from Archbishop Usher's chron chronology. 10,000, let's say. And I don't know when Job existed before Father Abraham. So you have Noah and Job. By the time of this writing, they're dead. But Daniel is a contemporary of Ezekiel. So you have Jeremiah as the contemporary of Ezekiel, Ezekiel, and then Daniel. And they're all talking about Book of Lamentations written by Jeremiah. They're all talking about the Babylonian captivity. So Noah and Job are, are dead. They're in heaven. <clears throat> but Daniel at this particular time, he is actually in the same predicament as, um, as uh, Ezekiel. He's in the Babylonian captivity. And so God tells us that these three people are righteous. And he says they couldn't save themselves, save their children, or save other people, uh, only themselves by their own righteousness. Remember, I, I, I can't remember when I spoke, either Sunday school or the morning sermon. I, I can't remember. But have theological guardrails. Know in your own theology certain things that you know, 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 not open for discussion. I'm not talking about baptism or speaking in tongues or anything like that. You, you know there are certain things that there is no discussion. The Bible is the word of God. Jesus is the Christ, God and man, the blood atones for our sins, those kind of things. 
And you can work your Bible and find out where those truths are. And so when you hear the Bible say they're righteous, like Noah was righteous, Genesis chapter 6. Wow, wait a minute. Didn't he lay around with his pants off drunk? How is that person righteous? And then when we know those theological truths that are immovable, well, the Bible says no one is righteous. And so if I find God saying that man is righteous, and the Bible says no one, naturally speaking, is righteous, that now will direct us how these men are called righteous before God. We have on the outside of our bulletin, Romans 5, it's like 1 through 11. I I don't know why I took away the, the numbering, but it's Romans 5, 1 through 11. For a person to be considered righteous, we have to have alien righteousness, as Luther would say. We have the righteousness of Christ. So these people are righteous from forward-looking faith in Jesus. They believed in the Christ to come, not the same amount of information that we believe in. But when God calls them righteous, righteous Simeon, righteous Anna, it's because they're looking for the consolation of Israel to come, Messiah. And so that's why these men are righteous, and that's how we would reconcile it with the universal statements that natural, ungraced man is not righteous. I do want you to think of that. Um, I just kind of fly over those points just assuming that as Reformed Christians we believe that. Not all people are Reformed Christians. Abraham, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3, referencing Genesis chapter 15, he believed the gospel and was considered righteous. King David said the holy Messiah will not suffer decay. Psalm 16, he believed in Christ. And we've talked about Moses suffering the reproaches of Christ from Hebrews chapter 11. Now, it's if you've ever read any commentaries on the book of Ezekiel, they're super interesting. Um, but when you have these three men, these three holy men, there are theologians that are a little bit more speculative than I am. And they want to be dogmatic. And I appreciate their desire to be dogmatic. Thus saith the Lord. The difficulty with being um, too dogmatic here is I don't think the text gives us warrant to be too dogmatic. What I mean by that is this. The Bible doesn't say why God is choosing uh, Noah, Daniel, and Job. It doesn't say why. It just tells us the general reason that they were righteous. Because you might want to delve into, I think Calvin does this, why wouldn't you bring up, if you were going to name characters in the Bible that clearly should be icons of righteousness, who's the first person that comes to mind if you know your Bible? Father Abraham is one. I'd for sure use Father Abraham. Moses, the deliverer, I'd use him. And then King David. Those three guys seem to be the pinnacle of the Old Testament saints. I'm not speaking against Noah Noah or, or, or Daniel, but if we were going to write the Bible, we would pick the others. And so people are speculative. Why? God didn't choose them and why God chose these people. We're told, as I say, in general, why God uses these particular three fellows. He says they're righteous. Um, They're true believers is the idea. And so God is going to use these fellows as a contrast to the rest of, of Judah or Israel. He says, here are these three true believers, righteous. Even if they were here, I wouldn't save all these people. And the notion is that the better part, I think almost to a man, with the exception of maybe Jeremiah and Ezekiel and and Daniel, they're unbelievers. They're not righteous. They don't have any faith. They're in the household of faith formally, 
but they have no faith looking for the Messiah to come. And that's the whole point. God says, even if I had my three righteous believers, I wouldn't save these unrighteous unbelievers. I'm going to judge. I'm going to judge them. And what's interesting, if you know your Bible, there are places where there is this kind of bartering conversation with God, or maybe a saint of God with God as an intercessor. And the notion is, even if Noah were to intercede, even if Noah were to pray to me, I wouldn't listen to him. I, I would still judge you. That's the idea. But there are places in the Bible where one of God's saints, Moses did this, Father Abraham did it, and he goes to God and God says, I'm going to judge that place for all those wicked people. And then the believer, Abraham, in the instance I'm thinking of, says, God, well, if you could find 50 people here, would you spare the whole place for 50? You remember the, the conversation. Is it Genesis 18, 19? God comes as in the angel of the Lord. It's a theophany or Christophany. And he says to Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because they're all wicked. And then Abraham does what? And this is a picture of the believer. This is a picture of the believer. And we should have this heart. And I, I do wonder sometimes, would we have this part, heart? Imagine if God says, well, you see Provincetown or San Francisco, I'm going to turn it all into glass or a parking lot. I do wonder if us Christians would jump up or jump down on our faces and say, oh God, please, those are human beings. They're image bearers. Please have mercy. Or whether we would say, well, bad things happen to bad people. I'm, <laughs> I'm afraid many of us would not respond like Father Abraham. When Father Abraham heard that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, of course his nephew lived there. But the notion is, well, would you destroy the whole place? So he has this discussion. And he goes back and forth with God. He says, he goes to, to, to 50, to 40. And then God finally says to him, <clears throat> if there are 10 righteous people in this city, I won't destroy it. And were there 10 righteous people in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? There were not 10 righteous people. You had righteous lot. And I think his poor daughters were not righteous, and his poor wife certainly was not righteous. And so there is this notion of sometimes God's people bartering with God. If you found some true believers among this mass of unbelievers, would you spare the whole lot of them? And there are places where God says, I would. But I want you to read this. And this isn't re reference what I'm about to read. This is from Jeremiah, same context of Ezekiel. This is not, if I found 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I would save it. This is Jerusalem. And this is Jeremiah chapter 5. And listen to what God says. It's the same idea. If you could find some righteous people, would you spare the rest of the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous? Jeremiah verse five, chapter 5, verse 1. Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. And listen to this. And look now and take note. And seek in her open squares. If you can find a man, singular. If there is one who does justice, singular, who seeks truth, then I will pardon her. And although they say, as the Lord lives, there's that hypocrisy. Surely they swear falsely. God says to the people through Jeremiah, through Ezekiel, there's not one righteous person here. And the idea is excluding these prophets. 
And what that's teaching us is the mass. This is a Hebrews 3 and 4. This is a hard truth. The mass of the visible household of God are unbelievers. They're apostates. And there's nothing new under the sun. And I'm not saying that we can't find it. There's a church with not one true believer. But God is telling his people um, they're unbelievers. And we remember when we reject God's offer of mercy in Christ, um, only judgment. God makes the same kind of a judgment, um, a, a statement. Even if these righteous people were here, I wouldn't save you. He does in Jeremiah 15. Um, he says, 15.1, Then the Lord said to me, Even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. The notion is, the holiness of the true believer does not save the other people that they live near. You could have a, a righteous mom, a righteous dad, but unless our children are born again, or our grandchildren are born again, our true faith, our righteousness that we have by being joined to Jesus does not save them. And so being near to a believer is not the same thing as being found in Christ. And that's the notion. That's why he said they would be saved, but no one around them. They couldn't even save their own children if their children didn't have faith in Christ. And one of the related truths to that, righteous people don't save anybody, only righteous Christ saves people. One of the truths um, related to that is that all people individually and personally are responsible before God for themselves. Um, now I'm, I'm leaving aside the, how God converts infants and how God converts uh, the infirmed. I very much agree with our Confession of Faith, chapter 10 on effectual calling. God the Holy Spirit converts the elect infants and the elect infirms where, when, and how he wants. I'm sure he does. But leaving those folks aside, we, we are all culpable before God. And every man has to answer for themselves before God. Charles Spurgeon has, I put a quote of Spurgeon in here um, about trials, but Spurgeon has another quote. He's very pithy. He has a statement that says something like this. Um, All people have to do two things, two fundamental things alone, individually, personally. No one can do them for you. You must do your believing in Jesus Christ personally, individually, for yourself, We can't believe in Jesus for anybody else. If we could believe in Jesus savingly for another person, every mother would believe for their children. That's a fact. Even the Apostle Paul says, I I would give the Israelites my faith if I could. Every mother would give their children their faith in Jesus if they could, but we can't. So every individual has to do their own believing. And then Spurgeon would go on to say, the other thing that people have to do alone, personally, is we have to do our own dying. We have to believe in Christ alone, personally, for ourselves. And we have to die, personally. No one can go through dying for us. When it comes to the day that we're going to die, when it comes to the way that God has designed for us to die, we have to do our own dying for us. We can watch people die. We can weep with them. I've been thinking about my mother like crazy lately. Very first person I watched breathe their last breath. I could not experience that for my mother. So we have to do our believing on our our own for ourselves, and we have to do our dying 
Um, and obviously, if we're in Christ, we don't ever die alone. We die in Christ. But this is teaching us that a man's righteousness um, is not transferable, as it were. And God will not stop his justice because he has given mercy to some. And that all men are responsible. As I mentioned, this is also teaching us that the better part of the household of faith doesn't have any faith. Look at verse 13 to see uh, how God refers to the sin of the people. We looked at this morning in our Sunday school lesson dealing with question and answer 14 from the Shorter Catechism on what is sin. The Bible talks about sin under various terms, and this is one particular term. He he says, he, he calls Israel's sin the sin of unfaithfulness faithfulness so this is the the sin of um, spiritual adultery so they're apostates a hindu is not an apostate in the way that is the israelite here was an apostate apostate is falling from a place of integrity so losing your integrity and let's just say i could i know we could take it back to creation but let's not take it that far back so the hindu that's a consistent hindu hasn't fallen from a place of integrity they've always been worshiping a false god but the professing believer in Israel has, has defected. They're apostates. So that's the person that's married to God, at least formally, who defects from their head and husband and then runs off with their paramour, their false god. That's an apostate. And that's worse. It's more heinous in the eyes of God than, say, the card-carrying <clears throat> Gentile pagan. And God says to his people that he reckons their sin, their unbelief, as a species of unfaithfulness. Now, the Old Testament, it it would bring you up short. When we, remember I said we look at this and we say, we've got to believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. The Word of God sometimes uses language that if we go slower, it would hurt our feelings. It would offend us. There are things in the Bible that are downright offensive. If you said them in public, it wasn't the Bible, people might give you a knuckle sandwich. To call people an adulteress you're calling them a particular name, which is not a very polite name. And God says, they have committed unfaithfulness against me. I'm their faithful husband, and they are my unfaithful wife. And you think, well, does God use that language? Yes. Think of the book of Hosea. God says to Hosea, go marry a woman of harlotry. And he married Gomer. And what does he say? Gomer is my wife. Gomer is Gomer is my wife. Gomer is Israel. Gomer is a harlot. She's unfaithful. And she doesn't even charge. She pays. And that's how unfaithful she is. It's kind of stunning. You say, well, maybe does God only speak against the visible household of faith in such striding terms in the Old Testament? Maybe in the New Testament, he never ever uses that kind of a word. That's not true either. Um, James writing to the scattered tribes, professing believers. You adulteresses. You adulteresses. That's what God is saying in Ezekiel to the church. Imagine calling your wife that. If your wife wasn't an adulteress, I think she'd be down in a divorce court within minutes. You adulteress. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. These people are unbelievers in the church. 
They say they believe in God, they don't. They say they believe the Bible is the word of God, they don't. And look at the kind of preaching and preachers that God sends to them. He sends them the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 6. He sends them the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Ezekiel. He sends them the civil magistrate Daniel, all inspired by God. We're not talking a stumbling, bumbling, barely able to speak a few words, uh, ordinary minister. Not that kind of guy at all. These are people inspired to speak the very words of God. And the people don't believe them. And they're hiring the false prophets. The false prophets are saying everything's wonderful, and they're saying, those are the guys. And here are the inspired guys, and the people say, we don't believe. Kind of a stunning thing. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, buck up. Be a good soldier. If you're faithful to the Bible, people aren't going to want to listen to you, at least not the most of them. There'll be a remnant that will want to listen to you. Those are the sheep. But the better part of them, they're goats. They want, they want to hear funny stories. And your ministry is not to those people. Your ministry is to the elect of God. There's nothing new under the sun. And so I very much feel for um, my brother in the faith and my brother in the ministry, Ezekiel, but he has to press on. And the better part of the people of God are not believing that this preaching is, is, is the word of um, God. One of the things that we do learn here is, especially even as we look at the mercy passages, when God has mercy on some, that doesn't mean he won't have justice on the rest. And actually, on everyone that he doesn't have mercy, he's going to exact justice. But also, when God pours out his justice on the bulk, it doesn't mean that God won't have mercy on some. And both are meant to, one, warn us, and the other is encourage us. Then, so you have the three holy people basically indicting the rest of the, the household of faith as unbelievers. And then God introduces these four plagues, or four severe methods of death. And he, he, he talks about what they are, famine and, and sword and these kind of things. These are, they, they represent God's strict justice. The quote that we, the verse that we quote all the time is Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. All this is is exacting of the death penalty. And God is using these particular plagues and various things as the agents to carry out um, his justice against sinners. So you have sword, you, 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 and that's the Babylonian uh, war battles. You have famine. Famines are, are often associated with the war. We um, watch what's going on in the Ukraine. Famine. Wild beasts. When you kill all the men and you kill all the agriculture, um, the, the wild animals will populate the place. And then plagues, plagues to kill both. The text says plagues to kill both men and animals, meaning you're not going to work with these animals and you're not going to eat the animals because I'm going to send a plague and it will kill both men and um, beasts. All of those various forms of death sentences are what's called covenant curses. You see it both in the book of Deuteronomy and in the book of Leviticus. And if you were a Bible-believing Jew, if you actually believe the Bible, this, should, this is like John 3.16 in a way for the, the New Testament Christian. If I showed a New Testament Christian that was raised in a Bible-believing church, John 3.16, but I didn't say John 3.16, I just gave the words, they would all say, oh, that's John 
when I come along here in the Old Testament and say, listen, you are unfaithful, you're a harlot, you're an adulteress. And because you're an adulteress, God is going to send these four things upon you. If you were actually listening to Moses or listening to your Bible, you would go, oh, these are covenant curses. These are God's curses on God's professing people for rejecting God and embracing false gods. Leviticus 26, your strength will be spent uselessly. Your yield, your land will not yield its produce. The trees will not yield their fruit. If then you act with hostility towards me, you are unwilling to obey me. I will increase the plague on you seven times according to your sins. I'll let loose uh, among you the beasts of the field. They're going to bereave you. They're going to bereave your children. So the people of God, remember I said we don't benefit, we don't, we're not benefited unless we believe the Bible. One of the benefits of the threatening passages is if you believe them, you don't receive the thing being promised. If God says, if you reject me, this bad thing will happen. If you cease from rejecting him and repent and you return to the Lord, you don't receive judgment. You do receive mercy. And obviously it's indicative of the grace of God that he has upon us. But this is this is a covenant curse. This should have been this should have been readily uh, recognizable to um, the people of God. That's what God is saying. And they, the people of God, were meant to have learned been uh, to be to have learned from these particular things. God says further in Leviticus, "I'll break the staff of your bread. Ten women will bake your bread in one oven." They'll bring back your bread in rationed amounts so you'll not eat, you'll eat and not be satisfied. The notion is the place will be depopulated from men. And why will it be depopulated from men? Why will, be the, will there be so many women? Because the men will all be killed in war. And God says all of these things are going to occur because you've embraced your paramours, you have an evil heart of unbelief, and I'm going to bring these things upon you. And the people of God didn't believe. Now look look at verse 21, because from verse 21 onward, what you have is God changes the tone, really. He says, how much more um, will my four severe judgments be? But look at verse 22. Yet behold, survivors will be left in it who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. There is a there's a truth in the Bible, the notion of remnant. God says the very same thing in the book of Isaiah. It's around about Isaiah 6, maybe 10 or 11, something like that. Remember, God says, I want you to preach to these people who are going to go off to Babylonian captivity. I want you to tell them, thus saith the Lord, most of the people are not going to believe you. They're going to go off to judgment. They're going to die. I'm going to cut down the, the tree of Israel, as it were, to its stump. The only people that I'm going to save are the people in this stunt, the stump, a tenth, a tithe, a little bitty remnant. So God's justice on the bulk of the people for their sin, for their unbelief, justice. And God says, but I'm going to save that little bitty remnant, whatever the little bitty remnant is. Now, the little bitty remnant, when I say little bitty, the Bible does refer to the people of Christ as the little flock, little in many many reasons. I think we, sh- we should be little in our own eyes. We should be meek and lowly in our own eyes because we are lowly. 
and so we should have God's right estimation of us, and so we should esteem Christ. But certainly numerically, when we consider the little flock, this little portion being saved out of the mass of unbelievers, that's also true. But on the great day, the great day of judgment, which this day kind of typifies the great day of judgment, that little bitty flock of that little bitty remnant taken over the thousands and thousands of years that people have existed, the Bible says there'll be myriads and myriads and myriads. So I think there's a cult that says only 144,000 people are going to be in heaven, heaven. Everybody else gets, I don't know what, we get the back of the bus. Um, they take that from the, the um, 144,000 sealed from Israel in the book of uh, Revelation. That's wrong. There will be thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands, myriads and myriads and myriads of true believers. So we look around and think, wow, there's only two people in a house cat. Oh, there's way more than two people in a house cat. The, the number will be, we, we, we won't be able to count the number. But the notion is, in relationship to the bulk of mankind, in relationship even to the bulk of the church, it will be a smaller portion. It will be a remnant. But the encouraging thing that I find here is that God will, in fact, save. And when you look at this business, it's not, again, as if these people are inherently better. God has mercy on the people he has mercy, and God has justice on the people he has justice. And the people that he plucks, as, what is, is it Jude or James? He pluck, you pluck them, they're in the fire. They're about to go in the fire. And God snatches them out of the fire. That is, I think I referenced this morning, John Newton. John Newton, was he just a, just not like a very bad sinner? Was he just a pretty good guy? Is that why God saved him? No. Even John Newton says, read a biography on John Newton. When he forsook the, the, the religion that his mother taught him, he decided, I'm going to be the best pagan there ever was. And if he was a slaver, and he was a slaver, and you have complete control over people, guess what you think guys are going to do? And he did it. That's the kind of people God saves, right from the fire. You, we deserve the plague, all of us. We deserve the sword. We deserve the animals to eat us, all of us. And God says, but I'm going to save some. That's grace. And the cause isn't in us. Why does he give justice to that one? Why, do he give, why does he give mercy to me? What's the answer? for his glory and when we look around and we see those family and friends who are the same kind of sinner receiving justice and we receive mercy we sing with Newton amazing gift grace is all God and then God says he's going to take these people that he plucked from the fire He's saved by pure mercy. And he's going to bring them off to Babylonian captivity. And what will they provide for the people in captivity? Comfort. Comfort. People will say, God has not treated us completely as our sins deserve. God has extended mercy, even though the only thing we deserve is justice. God is a good God. God is a good God. Um, let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Your promise to judge sinners is frightening. 
especially when we know ourselves to be sinners, but your promise to have mercy on some, it melts our hearts, Lord. We are those vessels of mercy. Why you have saved us, why you have loved us, when we've been so unlovely, and, and there are many times we still are unlovely. We thank you that you are loving and kind and merciful. We tremble at the justice. Not enough, but we do. And Father, we wish and pray that you would cause us to be overwhelmed and to, to be so thankful that no matter what happens to us in this life, you have plucked us from the fire. You've had mercy on us. You've not treated us as our sins deserved. And you've saved us. And we belong to you. We thank you for that. Amen.